0: welcome to this episode in Season 3 of Recovering. I'm Frank Ritchie, Church Minister, Chaplain and Radio Broadcaster. Recovering is a Media Chaplaincy New Zealand podcast highlighting the excellent work of Aotearoa New Zealand journalists. In each episode, I sit down with a leading journalist to discuss the story that's had the biggest impact on them both personally and professionally.
1: Michelle is on a zero hours contract. What that means is that she's got a job and she's got an employment contract, but what good is the paper it's written on if it doesn't actually guarantee her any hours?
0: In this episode, I talked with TVNZ breakfast host Anna Burns Francis. Before recently taking up the role on Breakfast, Anna worked as TVNZ's U.S. correspondent, landing in that role in the middle of the pandemic, the 2020 U.S. election, and towards the tail end of the Black Lives Matter protests. It was a big role to take on in a highly volatile time. In this chat, Anna reflects that one particular role made her as a journalist, her time with Campbell Live.
1: The union representing Michelle, Tour, and thousands of other workers is on a constant campaign to end zero-hour contracts. For Tua, the answer is simple. Give them the hours that they're
0: fighting for. The Campbell Live era, and particularly how it came to an end, was a significant part of the news and journalism scene in New Zealand. Love it or hate it, Campbell Live gave us stories that many still remember. During that time, Anna chased and covered a story that changed the nature of employment contracts in some of our biggest fast food chains, the issue of Zero Hour Contracts. And it's a pleasure to have you in our little studio here in Penrose. I really appreciate you taking some time out.
1: Oh, I'm really um, flattered to be asked. Actually, thank you for having me.
0: You're in a good lineup now. Actually, when I think back through the last few seasons of Recovering, there are some good personalities in there. So now you're one of the superstars.
1: Yes, I have to say, I did listen to a couple that well a long time ago before I even knew what I was listening to, really. And I thought that's quite a cool podcast. And then it sort of drifted away from me, and now here I am back. It's come full circle.
0: There you go. Well, it's nice to have you back in the country. First, <laughs> thank after you. spending a stint over in. In the United States. Yeah. I want to start there uh, because I was thinking about things like TVNZ's US correspondent and Europe correspondent, and in my mind, it's a ridiculous role. And it's a ridiculous role because you're one person, Yeah, you're sent over to a country with a population of over 300 million, in a huge expanse that has different time zones, and you're expected to cover it where every single one of those states in the United States is a kind of a country on its own, and you're one person. That's massive.
1: Yeah, I I mean, I didn't make it to every single state, but they are all like separate countries. And that's the way to think of it, really, is that I went to one part of that country and I... Had a little spotlight or a little torch, and I shone it on individual little patches in those two and a half, three years. And that was all I got to, really, because it is. The world is huge, and then those countries are huge, and we're just tiny little old New Zealand, yeah.
0: So can I ask what the brief is for that role, out of interest?
1: The brief? um,
0: What are you expected to do?
1: Everything. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny, because... You might have the experience as a journalist, but you also have to, in those roles, become the admin manager and the travel booker and the health and safety officer and the counsellor for the cameraman when he's been working 18-hour days isn't about to flip a lid on the gas station forecourt in Ohio because we can't find COVID tests on a Sunday. Mm. So, you know, um, you wear a lot of different hats in those roles. So I think it's less about what the role Specifically, demands and you learning to adapt and to play different roles and to do different things as it's required. You just have to be very okay with waves coming at you all the time.
0: Yeah, and you landed in probably one of the craziest times you could do the role with the middle of the pandemic. Yep. We have the Trump-Biden election and we saw how that all played out.
1: Yeah, I got there at the tail end of the summer of Black Lives Matter protests and um, of course the federal government had shut so I couldn't get a social security so I couldn't lease an apartment legally so the sublet I found um, was a great sublet but it happened to be on the corner in Manhattan in Chelsea in a very busy intersection which happened to be the corner where all the protests took off each night so seven o'clock each night there was all the chanting and the protests coming past the street and then of course very quickly Donald Trump got COVID and my boss was calling me saying how quickly can you get to DC and I'm saying I think it's like 2am at the moment so (laughs) um, I can sort of try and be there by the morning
0: yeah. How do you prep for that?
1: You don't. You have a bag and you put everything that you need in the bag and then you just look at the next hour and what do I need to do for the next hour and the next hour after that and the next hour after that. And as long as you've got a cameraman so that you can actually get something up, you've just got to roll.
0: How much work would you have been doing just with your phone?
1: Um, do,
0: what do you mean in terms of... Oh, I mean, uh, if you've got to get somewhere really fast, uh, I would imagine there was some filming going on on your phone. There's um...
1: uh, Sometimes... Only probably supplementary, though. I mean, my phone was very useful in that I had every app ready to go because I got a good warning from Jack Tame. Download this app. Use this app to book flights. So if I ever had to book anything, I could move quite quickly on the fly. I had a go bag ready to go. I had my earpiece, and I had a power pack and a phone. But, you know, the thing I think we always forget is that We see American culture, and we see the good part of American culture, but we know about the bad parts of American culture. But we we eat burgers, and we drive American cars, and we watch American movies and laugh at their sitcoms. But you've got to remember that in a lot of parts of America – there is huge amounts of racism. Mm. Everyone is carrying a gun. It is not okay to be a young woman who falls pregnant in a lot of those states. And so it's really probably not that safe to be a woman out at 2am on the streets of some of these places. So I did have a cameraman for a lot of that job. Uh, And that was really my eyes and my ears. Um, And also, you know, my driver, the person who was tasked with finding the flat white, the person who would say, okay, I know you've got to go and uh, have a sleep and do some hair and makeup and write a script for the next five hours, but I want you down here in six because we need an hour to get to the live spot and those things.
0: Man, And you had a a reasonable amount of experience going into it, not necessarily for that role, but in terms of your career.
1: I feel slightly anxious at people who don't have as much experience as I do because I had quite a bit of experience from previous channels and shows, uh, not only being able to produce stories of different lengths and of varying topic depths, you know, seriousness, lighthearted, all those sorts of things, but also just the ability to think on your feet when you're travelling like I know that I need that as soon as you move your whole timeline for the day is blown out Mm. or what can I do or what do I see as I go along this road that could make another story further down the road or just knowing okay Donald Trump's got COVID the next eight days are just going to be work day and night how do I cope with that barley sugar's in the bag water bottles in the back of the car
0: Mm. We'll go back into some of your previous experience shortly, but what did you learn in that stint in the US that that is just going to stick with you for the rest of your career that you didn't have previously?
1: Um, I don't think I really grasped how big the world was. And I know that sounds quite funny. I'd traveled overseas quite a bit and and I've been to a lot of different continents, but I hadn't lived in that society, which is I thought it was so similar and it was just so different. Mm. I mean, even right down to really, Americans can't really understand what you're saying. (laughs) Your accent is English, but they don't know where New Zealand is. It was really quite funny to see the difference in our education systems and our healthcare systems. And it really, I mean, it's not sub-Saharan Africa, but I did come home thinking, man, I'm grateful to have had the experience of growing up in the country that I did and to know that there is a place that's better than America to live in. We met this lady at the Met once. It was the Egypt display, and I don't know if you've ever been there, but they've basically reconstructed some, uh, well, I think they were probably stolen artifacts from Egypt in the first place, but now there's a deal where the Met pays the Egyptian government every year for hosting them, and this woman got talking. She said, why would you go anywhere else? New York has it all. <laughs> and it's like, well, that is true. Everything does come to New York, but amazingly, you would, you've would you missed out on the richness of the experience of seeing and living with other cultures and being in other parts of the world and I got that living there, but I'm not sure Americans get that in their lives.
0: Mm. And obviously being a sucker for punishment, in order to learn that the globe is big, you didn't just do that. You started a relationship with someone who was in Singapore yeah, at the time.
1: Yeah, uh, Simon. So, I mean, he's a Kiwi and we were friends uh, in New Zealand okay. and we met in New Zealand. But, of course, the borders were closed. And yeah. so we couldn't come home to New Zealand. He couldn't get back. I couldn't get back. But And it's a funny time to try and explain to anybody else – that the rest of the world was open and we could travel freely and we could go on holidays and we could test and isolate for a week in a hotel room and then we were free to go. Mm. Um, And, you know, the rest of the world, I think a lot of Kiwis would be surprised because I see quite a bit of anti-mask sentiment still around in New Zealand and I find that surprising. But then I think maybe you didn't know how bad it was. Yeah, I there think we were, a,
0: we're a victim of our own success. You are, and it to was, some extent. it was relatively hard to do it, but I have friends in other countries who, who can't understand the anti-vax sentiment, for instance, because they watched family and friends die. So,
1: so when I first got to New York, there was a morgue tent at the end of my friend's street. I was staying there for the first couple of nights, and she was like, do you know what that is? And I was like, a tent? And she's like, that's the morgue tent for COVID. Mm. And, you know, there was the ship in the river uh, to hold all the bodies that they thought they were going to have. And, you know, in New York, every time there's a surge or when there's a snap of cold weather, the masks go back on because they've seen what it's like. Mm. And you know that you can't rely on your fellow man sitting next to you to be vaccinated because they have a very individualistic approach to society. We are way more collective, even if we don't feel it sometimes.
0: Coming back, how has it been settling into uh, the rhythm of breakfast? Because you haven't come back just to a normal job. You've come no. back to inhuman <laughs> yeah. hours uh, yeah. in a big role.
1: Well, it was a bit of a quick turnaround, and I think that it's taken me a bit of time to adjust to that. I was packing up my apartment four or five days, I think, before I was on air here. And also, I worked all that time on my own, well, you know, out in the field or in a studio you know, the similar size to this, and to come back and be in this big production where someone does your hair and makeup and there's four other people that you have to talk to every day and and bounce off and share ideas with, it's very different. You know, being a correspondent can feel a bit didactic sometimes. It's straight down the lens and nothing else. You don't get any Mm -hmm. feedback from it. And it's, yeah, been... A big learning curve. I like working in a team. I really like sharing ideas with people and talking things through. So I certainly have very quickly noticed I don't feel that loneliness that I used to feel in my work. Um, But at the same time, you have to learn to share other ideas that people, you think, I think that's a rubbish idea. But, you know, like that's just not for me. And that's got a place in this show too. And someone else is going to make a really good job of it. And and quite often the others do do really good interviews that – I would totally faff. I'd be terrible at them, but they're all still good ideas and they all offer something to someone.
0: Yeah, coming to the idea of interviews, I've told you this before, but I really appreciate your interview style. And I've said this to you as well, and it probably shouldn't be an unusual thing to say now, but I think it is. I have no idea who you would vote for.
1: I don't know who I'm going to vote for.
0: <laughs> Which is probably a great thing, because I think so often now you can pick up the political leanings of journalists. Yeah. And that that I don't think is how it's meant to be.
1: I think one thing the States did teach me was that we are massively lacking in our civics education. But also, I do see New Zealand politics, and I'm loath for it to go this way, but I don't know if I see it going any other way, down this really shallow, talking point way that you see Americans discuss politics and we're not going, this is not, doesn't get you anywhere. We're not going long term here. You know, I really think we should be looking at stretching out our voting terms because we need to get things achieved in more than just these tiny, it's not even three years, it's two years by the time you have all the promises for leading up for six months and then all of the last six months where no one gets anything done anyway. So, you know, I really feel like America taught me a lot about Going, are we seriously talking about this? What really matters in society? What matters in progressing us as a society? What can we really talk about that matters long term? And I don't, what frustrates me in those political interviews every week is that a lot of it becomes quick, shallow talking points. And actually, yeah. let's have a deeper discussion about that.
0: Yeah, well, that's what I appreciate about you. I see you pushing for that for that deeper discussion. I see you affirming where affirmation can and should take place. I see you questioning where it feels like the PR training is kicking in. And you do that, from what I've seen, you do that equally with with all of our political parties. I I I don't know
1: that I always get it right. You know what frustrates me the most, though? You see them doing this, they're winding out the clock. They just talk for two minutes. And I think, stop, you know I can't interrupt you because you're on a roll and people say, don't be so
0: rude. Yeah, yeah.
1: That's what infuriates me is that I feel like politicians dumb us down and think that we can't debate agricultural emissions or the value of really lowering class ratios or what would it matter if we really did change the way we pay tax. But they just go, well, you know, rich people should pay more or, you know, we should stop giving welfare benefits. You know, it's just like, come on, let's actually have a reasoned proper debate and deep dive into it and stop making it this five minute talking point. It doesn't get us anywhere.
0: And there, just in that very quick thinking, you hit both sides of the political yeah, we, spectrum they and both annoy me <laughs> yeah it's fa- it's fantastic and i think it's it's worth people hearing this if they're not if they're not used to listening to or they can't hear the pr training that's in play that sometimes the reason we the reason you cut people off is because the clock's being played out they're doing exactly what they've been trained exactly. to do
1: Exactly, and like you know what that 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 PR person has done a great job, but what did you actually learn from that? And your ideas should constantly be challenged. Not just me challenging a politician, but you as a voter should have your ideas challenged all the time. I'm happy if someone wants to try and convince me on something. Give me all the facts. Try and change my perspective. I'm more than open to it. And if I get to the end and I think, well, actually, hang on on the balance and I've written down a list, I don't know that that serves me or serves my interests or serves my society better. I'll stick with what I've got. But we don't. We just go, yeah, that sounds right.
0: I think this is really important because I think there's a, and, and research shows it, there's a serious lack of trust in media at the moment. I think some of that is external, external forces in play, just deliberately eroding trust in media. I think some of the media has played a part in that. Absolutely. Uh, with the commercialization that's gone on, the lack of resources, the increase of opinion over uh, objective storytelling. But I think your interview style and everything you've just conveyed I think is important because I think it can help rebuild trust in media
1: yeah well the problem is i mean that's a big effort as well because you have competing interests within media we are constantly challenged in this race to the bottom to sell ads, keep eyeballs, Mm. to generate more viewers who want to listen to us. So how do we keep them? Wow, we push the boundaries by teasing something a bit more or pushing someone a bit more or causing a bit more of a controversy. And maybe actually if you wrote it down on a piece of paper and made someone read the transcript, it wouldn't actually be that unbalanced or that unfair. But there's so many different aspects that can make something seem one way or seem another way or the overall slant of a certain show that you think... Oh, well, I'll agree with that or no, that's absolute rubbish. Set it on fire.
0: Mm. Now, your experience, of course, you cut your teeth in some interesting places in terms of doing media. You mentioned yeah. Radio Live yeah. a little bit earlier before we actually started recording, but Campbell Live was a big part of your career it as was, well. yeah. And that was a fascinating era. Uh, and I think we've lost something with the loss of Campbell Live and Close Up, those uh, shows that hit just after the news that had some investigative stuff going on that just isn't there now. The Campbell Live era... What did that mean to you?
1: That was the place that made me a journalist. So I would say uh, before that, I was a reporter. So I was a a news reporter for radio and a news reporter on 3 News. But Campbell Live made me a journalist and a storyteller. It taught me how to get a good nose for a story, what really makes something interesting, what connects with the viewer, why do we need to know about this. But it also taught me about doing advocacy journalism, In a really fair and balanced way. Like, there is a purpose to this. You don't have to pretend that you're not biased, but that doesn't mean that you are advocating to alienate someone or to drag people along with you. You're simply saying, hey, does this look fair to you? Or is this right to you? And and maybe we could all jump on board and agree that Something could be better here. And that's what Campbell Live taught me, was that you can have fun doing that. I mean, my colleagues did some incredibly funny stories over the years and some wonderful journalism. But also that you could bring a spotlight to stuff that people just weren't thinking about in their everyday lives. You know, they got home and we had to ask them to turn on every night at seven. You know, if they didn't make it all the way through to lots of news and the sport and the weather, we then wanted them to hang on for another half hour. It had to be really compelling TV. And I think it was for a long, long time. It was, and it was a shame that it all came to an end the way that it did. Because I don't think it needed to end. Mm. And it certainly, I agree with you. It's a, it's a massive hole that no one program covers the way that Campbell Live did.
0: Mm. That era. We started media chaplaincy, I remember signing the, the documents at the end of 2014. So 2015, we're really starting to get the ball rolling. And one of the reasons we got it started was because we could see the shifts and the changes going on in the media and a severe lack of care. We looked at uh, HR departments and saw people who were... I don't
1: think TV3 had an HR department at that time.
0: <laughs> and even those that did at the time, they were interested in making sure they were maximising the human resource as opposed to caring for the staff. Yeah. Um, and, uh, what... HR number departments are notorious for doing that yeah exactly uh and watching the tv3 newsroom get gutted and watching campbell live go through everything that it went through was one of the reasons we do what we do was because of what we saw during that time what was the experience like for you during that time
1: traumatizing Mm. yeah it was public it was so public it was a it was um excruciating because everything seemed to leak to the papers before we even knew about it, and then it was this public feedback consultation period where we still had to produce 30 minutes of television every night. Um, And there'd just been Cyclone Pam up in Vanuatu. so And yeah, then there were other stories, obviously, that we were working on at the time. Zero Hours was one of them, and it was just... We had a huge amount of public support at the same time. Our bosses wouldn't even look at us when they walked through the corridors. So we just, we felt like we were contagious and, you know, there were other people in that newsroom that wouldn't talk to us and wouldn't look at us because to associate with us, we were dead men walking. Mm. They knew it and we hoped it wasn't true. But I think deep down, we might have played it a different way if we had our time again. We, We may not have chosen to have stayed on like that. We thought there was a chance we could save it. We believed in the product we produced and we wanted so desperately to keep doing it. We were so tight as a team. We felt like our audience um, loved us and were with us on that. And to lose it in such a public manner was, and it wasn't even my name on the program, you know, and I still felt it.
0: Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of public support. I remember it all going down. There was was plenty of public support. There were people who turned up and effectively protested on behalf of Camberline. I mean, we
1: never had a problem selling ads or getting sponsorship.
0: Uh, See, that says a lot. (laughs) (laughs) I could go further, but I won't. Uh, You talked there about having to still do the job. How did you keep your heart in the stories when you had all this other stuff playing out?
1: We almost became a bit desperate to do as much as we could for our audience and the people that had stuck by us until we really reached the very end and because there wasn't a deadline we, I mean Campbell Live was the sort of show where uh, we all were there for a 9am morning meeting and we were all still there at 7.30 at night and that was every day. We celebrated birthdays and you would go to each other's weddings and you would have the Christmas party at one person's house, not at a bar. And you would miss big family events because you were on a shoot or you had a job to do or you were on a trip for Campbell Live. So we were very close and very tight. And so that meant a lot to us to be able to just do the job that we all felt as a family we had to keep going and doing. That experience taught me a lot about accepting that everybody's going to have a different feeling on something, but you have to act in the interests of the wider group and we could have walked out but there were other guys on that team that had to pay a mortgage that week and put food on the table and it wasn't really an option for them to have to pick up my workload or for them to go without payment because the show got canned in a week instead of eight so we we did it for lots of reasons but we did it for each other and for our audience and and I guess as traumatizing as it was it also kind of put you in a brain fog and you were like right let's just bury our head and work and just keep going for a bit
0: I can think of a recent radio crew that would probably listen to that and uh, hear a lot of their own story.
1: Probably, Uh, yeah.
0: And again, it won't unpack that (laughs) either. So thinking about one of the stories that you had to put out while all this was playing out is the story that you want to spend a bit more time on. So talk us through the zero hours contract story.
1: So actually I was thinking, how did I notice that story? And it was an article that a lawyer had written in the Herald And it wasn't about zero hours, but about halfway through they said, you know, just like zero-hour contracts mean that you don't get any guarantee of work. And then it moved on. I thought, what's a zero-hours contract? Googled it. And Unite Union had done one post on it, maybe, or two, sort of saying, you know, we're going to do a protest and five people had turned up sort of thing. I thought, well, who does that affect? Rang the union. You got anyone on zero hours? Oh, yeah. We got heaps of kids on zero hours. And it just opened up this world that I had just, I'd never thought about. I wouldn't consider myself a huge consumer of fast food, which is primarily the industries that this affected and that we ended up talking to people from. So I just didn't think much about my interactions in this sort of world very much. But as soon as we got into it, you just, you dove straight in and you learned all about their lives and it became all consuming as to how this one tiny line in a contract that was however many pages thick in this booklet really actually dictated how their entire lives were going to play out while they worked for this company or whatever opportunity they were able to ever get to get ahead.
0: What I like about that is it's just a little bit of curiosity that then yeah. opens up this massive story. You saw something that catches your attention, and you go after it to find out a little bit more. I think
1: anyone who knows me would definitely use the word nosy to describe <laughs> me, Frank. I don't think
0: <laughs> no, that's Let's unfair. say curious. <laughs> let's say curious, because I think curiosity or nosiness is a really important part of journalism.
1: Yeah, hopefully it kills the cat before me. <laughs>
0: So uh, this was a big time because I think most of us had no idea about zero-hour contracts before you did that story. I think it was relatively unknown, unless you knew someone who worked in the takeaway industry.
1: And then even then, they might just say, oh, I haven't got work, so I'm not working. They wouldn't say, I've got this really unfair clause in my contract. What really gave that some momentum and fueled the fire was that the companies involved, at least for the first few stories – did not realize how much that would resonate with people, that it was just so unfair. And actually, what on earth are you doing? Like, how could you even just, what was the justification? Because what we saw them do, particularly with the first couple of people that we were involved with and that we interviewed, was that they would talk to us. And then their eight hours the next week would be zero hours. They were literally being punished. This one kid, he was like 16. He'd left school. He was trying to get a full-time job, but all that they were offering was zero-hour contracts. So they said to you, yeah, you know, you could get as many as 16 hours or 30 hours a week or whatever it is. But that's not what they rostered. And his job was to go into the fast food joint, and he would prep for the day. So he got two hours a day to do all the cleaning up that hadn't been done the night before and to set everything up for the day, get all the food out, turn everything on so it was warmed up and ready to go for this crew that came on and did eight hours. He got two hours one week after our story. And then for the next few days, he got nothing. Now, he'd gone every day. He'd had work. And then he got into that. And I was like, that's so obviously punishment.
0: And, and extremely stupid.
1: <laughs> and then, so of course, he came back and he said, I said, how many hours did you get, Muhammad?" And he said, I've got zero hours. And I'm like, it's, it's playing out. I mean... The story fell into our lap almost because of corporate stupidity and greed. They thought they were so greedy that they thought they could just be the bigger player in the story and that they could bully their way through it. And they couldn't because it just became an uncomfortable conversation. You were so big and so fat and so rich. How could you do this to a 16-year-old kid? You were punishing him and you were punishing the girl after that and the woman who was trying to look after her kids after that. And it became mean And they signed these emails like a so-and-so spokesman. Who are you? So we put that to air. I think it was a Burger King spokesman. They came back, whoa, don't call us a spokesman. Put a name to it. Because, of course, everything felt the big corporate from America kind of vibe versus the 16-year-old kid who was just trying to get a bit of money to help his mum pay the bills every week.
0: Yeah, and the idea of punishing them after talking to you, that's like poking a bear.
1: Yeah, I just... I was almost gobsmacked. It sort of felt not too good to be true. Obviously, it was a terrible thing that happened to him. But I just thought, seriously? Really? You would really play that game? You want to play that game? Fine, we'll put it to air. If you're going to do that to one tiny person in your massive cog or your your huge machine, then we will absolutely make sure we tell everybody about it. (laughs) Again and again and again. And, of course, once one folds, and this was the power of a show like Campbell Live, was that once one company said, okay, we'll take the clause out, then the next one felt like they had to. Because, of course, we were all saying, this one's taken it out. If you want to make sure you get some hours, what's the difference between McDonald's and Wendy's and Burger King and Starbucks and KFC if they've all got the same contract and then one of them folds? Go to that one.
0: Yeah. Yeah, really, really good. What sort of effect was it having on people's lives? Because I can just imagine the people listening and going, but at least they had a job.
1: But they didn't have a job. Mm. They had a contract that meant they weren't allowed to go and get a job anywhere else. They had to work when their employer told them to work. And that might be nothing. Is that a job? Because that's not the normal description of a job that I would envisage in society. A job is where I offer you my services and in return you pay me for them. But there's an agreement there that that will be for a set amount, that I will turn up and I will do that work for you. Mm. If there's no work, then that's not a job. And they they weren't offering work. They were offering the possibility of work. Well, I'm offering myself the possibility of a holiday if I pay for it, but I haven't.
0: And just to put it in perspective then, that that guy who's working two hours – A morning, two mornings, three mornings. At the time, I remember seeing someone else in one of the videos saying that they earned something like fifteen dollars fifty an hour. Yeah. So two hours of work would be thirty to thirty-one bucks, and you might be getting that a few times a week, and then not the next week. And it's hard to go and then find other work because you never know when you might be required.
1: You can't find other work, and it does complicate it, but we get into play with all the caps around if you want to go and get a top-up to a benefit or you want to claim some sort of welfare, there's a two-week delay. So, of course, if your payments are changing every week and some weeks it's zero but the next week it's eight hours, then the government comes back and says, oh, you worked, so now you owe us. Mm. So it just becomes incredibly hard and incredibly complicated. And there is, you know, I understand capitalism. I get it. We're going to have really rich people and we're going to have a big block of people in the middle and we're going to have people that are considered the low wage workers. And there will always be a lot of them because that's how capitalist society and structure works. And there is a certain level of suppression that has to occur to make sure that you have enough of those workers to staff your factories and your supermarkets. That's why we're not all on living wages. but. There is a, a systematic unfairness to that, and I think that that doesn't necessarily need to be at the level at which it's at. You know, we don't actually have to crush everybody's hopes and dreams just to keep this society and this economy going. We can offer opportunity to people to change who we are as a society and how we live and how we work and how we operate.
0: I agree. Those people are needed in order for society totally. to to operate. And
1: <laughs> I'd just like to point out they're low-wage workers, not necessarily low-skilled workers. Yes,
0: and... And if you don't look after them, if you track through history and around the globe, if you don't look after them, they get really discontented. That's where revolution starts.
1: And you know what? This argument used to drive me nuts in the States when they'd say, build a wall, no more immigrants. And I'm thinking, who's going to drive your golf cart? Who's going to clean your toilet in New Mexico? Who's, you know, stocking your fast food warehouse shelf in Palm Beach, Florida? It's not Donald Trump's kids. Yeah. It's the kid whose mum walked from Guatemala, or whose dad hiked over from Honduras, and got through on Dakar, and is just holding on by their fingernails, get a grip. Mm.
0: In order to do these stories, you need to get these people to trust you. They need they need to trust you, and there's a vulnerability that then comes in them telling your story and trusting you. Yeah, really. How do you not get overly personally involved?
1: You you do get
0: personally involved.
1: Yeah, and you have to be okay with that. I'll give them my phone number. We can text and talk for as long as you want because I'm asking you to give up a lot about yourself. Mm. I'm asking you to really let me in for just the briefest of moments, just a glimpse, just open the door and show me what's inside and then I'm going to actually take that and I'm going to put it on TV. And that's a huge amount of power and control over your own story to give up to the rest of the world. And I do think that part of my job has become harder as information gets shared wider where your story used to be like don't worry it's only on the tv for five minutes now it's actually well then it's going to end up on the internet and it's going to be on people's skyboxes that they can replay and it's going to end up shared on all these other news websites that we have sharing arrangements with with our content so it does get harder sure but there is also a tipping point at which people think I can't do this anymore and I have to be the agent of change. I have to be the one that, you know, nobody else is doing it. I've got to do it. And and it's about forming a relationship that says, y- you've got this problem. You're the best person to tell us about that. Let me join you. Let me come with you and we can both try and see if we can make something happen.
0: And for you then, how do you switch off when you're not in the story so that yeah. so that it doesn't just own your life and consume everything.
1: I hope my boss isn't listening to this, she'll be thinking, but it does own your life. <laughs> it does own your life. You know, I know that there are journalists who still, from, from Campbell Live days and TV One, they have contact with people that they did stories with years ago, and it, they will still be in contact with them. It does take over your life. You know, uh there will be, I guess, a little bit like there are medical professionals who will still think about clients and for decades on. You'll always think, what if I did that differently? Or what if I'd just done that? Or we'd just approached it this way? You'll always be thinking about, and not necessarily with regret, but just they will always be, if it was a story that was worth telling, you will always hold a little bit of that and just think, what if? Or what's happened to those people? I was just driving here, and I turned into this road, and I thought, I've been here before and it was a car dealer. I was a couple of minutes late here because I drove past the car yard to see if it was still there, um, and it's gone. And I thought, good, because that car dealer was a really nasty person and took a lot of money off a lot of people, and it was something like 21 judgments against this person. And we'd been round to their house on the shore, and they'd chased us off the property and called the cops, you know, because they were in the power position. They had all the money and all the control, and I just thought... You know, I still think about that story sometimes, and I still think about all those people who were owed money, and they never got it back. But at least by telling their story, they did make a change, and that that was that he got shut down and he couldn't keep selling these awful cars and ripping people off. You might not get the result you want, but you got a result that at least helps other people.
0: Thinking back to the zero hours contract story, who else lingers in your head then, still?
1: Just from that story? Yeah. Um... A lot of them were teenagers who'd left school early... And needed to try and come up with some money to help fund the family. And it was just these funny little tidbits that they would let you in on sometimes on their lives. I'd never thought about this. We had this one girl, we picked her up at the end of her shift. She's like, put me around the corner so they can't see me getting in the car. And I was like, don't worry, we've got magnets on. You know, we'll we'll just look like we're, you know, your mates or something. She was like, you're not going to look like my mates. Um, Anyway, she jumped in the car and I said, how was your shift today? And she said, oh, it's um, Wednesday. So everyone comes in and spends hundreds of dollars. And I just thought, Oh my God, I've just, I've never thought about this in my life. I've just never thought, I don't, I mean, for me, grabbing a burger is like, I'm hungover on a Sunday and I'm 18, 19, 20. And I think, oh, yeah, I'll grab that, you know, and there's just this whole life that these restaurants um, play in people's lives that you just don't think about unless that's your life. And I guess that this story really opened up for me is how much that one clause could affect so many different lives and that the customers were often the staff as well or their family were the staff or their friends were the staff and that actually this for some people did become a career path but for other people they were desperately trying to just hold on just to get another step ahead until they could find something better or their kids got to school age or yeah
0: yeah and the, there's a little line that you said earlier there that a lot of people might miss but culturally is really important a lot of these kids were trying to find an income to help fund their family their yeah. wider family their income was inputting into the household income
1: Yeah, Campbell Live really crossed this divide, which I think a lot of media companies have struggled with, and probably TV3 as well at the time, certainly, was that we you know traditionally media the big media in New Zealand have told stories through a white lens or a very European lens but the one thing Campbell Live I think did really well perhaps not necessarily the the end result or the end story still came with a Caucasian lens I'm Caucasian most of the reporters were was that we got input or buy-in or our audience and our stories were from such a huge and diverse range of New Zealanders or even recent immigrants people who maybe not considered themselves New Zealanders at that point in time but we really got across the whole country we got up to the Pacific and we told those stories and we connected with people in a way that I think a lot of traditional media right up until the end of that show had really failed to get anywhere near Mm. well done <laughs> well, I wouldn't say it was all me, but thank you.
0: <laughs> there was another bit in there that I relate to because I grew up in a um, solo parent home. My mother was on the domestic purposes benefit all of my growing up, and so in our childhood we lived in Tokoroa. We lived on one side of town. KFC was on the other side of town. Yeah. Once a month, when payday would hit, it wasn't every payday, but once a month on payday when the benefit would come in, we would walk all the way across town, and we would have KFC. It was treat a, day. Tre- it was a treat day. Yeah. So. As as a 45-year-old male, I still have a love of KFC do you? because of that.
1: Uh, for, and do you use it as a treat day?
0: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Only KFC once or twice a year now. It's not uh, it funny
1: how you have those memories. I grew up in Otahuhu, yeah. and um, in the school holidays, my treat was that my dad used to take me up to the motorway to wave at the traffic.
0: Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Okay, KFC is a better Why one. I even get the two. Do you do it now, though? Right? Like, I go to KFC when that childhood memory is that do you go up onto the motorway and wave? Yeah,
1: but the person I'm with usually finds it a bit embarrassing. They're like, what are you doing? And I'm like, waving at the traffic.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well,. You've had a you've had a great career so far, Anna. Thinking about the future of media as we close this off, what do you think it looks like?
1: What I think it looks like, and what I really want it to look like, are probably two different. All right,
0: give things. us both. Give us the what you want it to look like first.
1: Yeah. What you think? What it like. I want it to look like is. I really want it to stay focused on telling people's stories, that we never lose that curiosity, that nosiness about what our neighbours are doing, what people down the road are doing, because I think that that also fosters that idea that we care about each other that we're interested in furthering people's lives bettering them finding out about other people you know a lot of the conversation these days and I know I used the word before but it does feel really didactic it's like I'm gonna shout you down and it's my way or the highway we're not really putting out the other point of view to have a reasoned discussion about it we're doing it to force it on you so that you might agree with me at some point that's not what journalism or even wider media discussions should be. It should be about finding out and asking questions. We might be running out of time, but I remember after the election, we were doing this cross – was it after the election, yeah, and we were in D.C., outside the Hilton Hotel. It was outside after the insurrection, actually. It was a night after the insurrection, and the Hilton Hotel had been taken over by a whole lot of Trump supporters, and there was a news truck. Someone had come along and tagged ACAB, all cops are bastards. Mm-hmm. And we were standing beside it. So I think they might have thought that we were this news crew. And this guy just started coming up and screaming at me like, you know, like you've graffitied that truck. And, you know, who do you think you are? You're unpatriotic and you've got no idea. Fake news media da da. da. And I turn around and I said, who do you think you are? And he looked a bit like this because, of course, he thought I was American. I mean, I am white with blonde hair. And he said, oh, uh, uh, I said, you thought I belonged to this truck, right? You thought this was me but I'm not even from your country. He was like, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And I said, you should learn to ask questions yes. before you come along and make statements. And I feel like a lot of people just ask the question. Before you get heated up, what do you actually know about the other person and their point of view? And that's what I want media and I want journalism to be. Ask a question. Find out more than you think you already know. That should be what we're trying to do every day. Because, you know, you'll never get to the end but you might get to a point where you think you can make up your mind and then someone else will say something else and you might have more questions. Where I think it's going...
0: Can I just say first there, I'd like to give you a standing (laughs) ovation because I I think that that is so good just to ask a question. Not just journalists, but human beings in general. I Look at us going at each other on social media in particular. And if we're just curious about each other, we might discover human beings who think differently from us, but in many ways are very similar. And there could be many friendships formed across some of these divides that are happening.
1: Yeah. Every time you think you know something and you're going to say, but da-da-da-da, actually just ask a question instead. And I don't mean like a, well, but why though? But why did she do that kind of thing? But actually, genuinely, what can you ask instead of just telling me what you already think? Everyone talks too much about themselves, I think. (laughs) It's probably a bad time to mention that. (laughs) But where I think it's going, well, you know, I'd like to think that there is still a strong element of that. And I certainly see some really promising journalism ventures coming through. You know, there's some really great journalists in this country and they do God's work truly, but where do I think it's going? I do think that there is a large portion that is, quite rightly, they know the digital age is here and that we need to produce content, but you know when I started, when the internet became a thing and everyone started news websites, we used to call it journalism because we just had to bang out so many stories. It was just constant. And I feel like that is we're going through another cycle of that where we just have this voracious appetite for more and more and more and more. But you're just doom scrolling on your phone. Nobody's actually absorbing that. And so we're just recycling stuff. I see some story pictures and I think, we've literally done that three times this week in three different formats. But no one's looking at this story over here, which actually matters where there's actually some questions to be asked around what are we going to do about the climate crisis or education or health or, you know, any of the big things that are really going to matter about how you live your life. Mm. And instead we're just doing this TikTok on a day in the life of.
0: (laughs) Uh, Well, I'm, I'm hopeful. Because I, when I sit down with young journalists who are coming through, they're having to do the journalism, but their desire is exactly what we've, what we've talked about. And they look at people like you who have been in the industry for a while and they want to emulate that. So my hope is that as they do the yards that they need to do, churn out the stories, that if they can stick at it, then eventually that desire that all journalists seem to have will eventually... Uh, take over as well.
1: Yeah, I always wanted to be a war correspondent. I thought that that would just be the coolest thing ever and I just desperately have been the wrong correspondent in the wrong time at various times to not make that happen but I have had some incredible opportunities and that makes up for the emotional involvement that you have for the really long hours and the dedication that you have to give to the job for missing out on doing an OE because in this country you just have to get a foot in the door at any newsroom and stick at it until they know who you are walking past the boss's desk every day for the really low pay that is never going to even meet a teacher's salary kind of thing and I think I would really like to see that journalists for the future for the next 10 years 15 years 20 years can find those opportunities in an industry that is contracting and that is Tightening up, and there's less money all the time. That there are new avenues and new ways of storytelling that offer them those opportunities so that they do stick at it. Because without journalists, who are we as a society?
0: Let's leave it at that question because I think it's a good one. Thank you so much. Unanswerable, probably. (laughs) (laughs) But thanks for your time. Thank you. Nga mihi nui, Anna. Thank you for generously taking the time to sit down with me for this cordial. Thanks to Radio New Zealand for hosting this series and, of course, a huge thanks to you for giving some of your precious time to listen. I really do appreciate it. A big thanks as well to Josh Couch, Sam Donkin and Steph So Love ML for producing this podcast. If you appreciate this podcast, please give us a five-star rating and share it with someone else who would love to hear it. And remember to follow in your favourite app to catch future episodes. At Media Chaplaincy New Zealand, we value our media. We demonstrate that by offering free, independent and confidential support for media professionals. So if you work in the media industry and want to chat with someone who gets it, head to mediachaplaincy.nz to arrange a catch-up and the coffee's on us.